Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm Joseph Konzelman from Goldman Sachs Asset Management. I'm excited to be joined by my friend Prague Kano. He is a leading geopolitical expert and the author of six books, including his latest, The Future is Asian, Commerce, Conflict, and Culture in the 21st Century. So for you, Asia is not just a continent. How do you, just give us a little bit of clarity, right. how do you, what are the boundaries of Asia? Right. So there's the Eurasian supercontinent, right? One unified landmass, and we tend to talk about Europe and Asia as if they're different continents, but technically it's one landmass, but they're different regions. And the definition of the Asian region is the Mediterranean and the Red Sea. So very far west, I'm talking about Lebanon, Israel, Saudi Arabia, right? That's Asia. There's only one correct definition of Asia. I, I am a geographer, trust me. <laughs> There's one correct definition of Asia and pretty much no one else uses it because we have been politically inflected economically inflected to just focus on East Asia and the Pacific Rim. But there's only one Asia. So yes, I, I wanted to take that full expense. So the Asian region, but one of the key themes you know, that I talk about is this Eurasianization, not just Asianization. So in that sense, the lines are blurring significantly between Europe and Asia economically. But the Asian region is definitely the main subject. And it is indeed much, much bigger than what we tend to think. Before we get more into the economic and security elements of, of your book, an overarching theme that recurs is this, this theme of Asianization. What do you mean by that? And what does it mean for those who are not living in Asia? So Asianization is first and foremost about this process of Asia growing back together again, right? So to, to me and, and the way I explain it in the book is that the biggest story in the world today is not the rise of China. Right? It's the collective resurgence of Asia and the Asianization of Asia. It's a bigger story. So we, we tend to be quite ahistorical. You know, when we talk about Asia today and Asian economies, we just think, again, China, China, China. But Asia, I mean, but China is the midpoint in this process of Asia's collective resurgence. The story actually begins with Japan, right? Japan in the post-war decades had to lift itself up out of the ashes of World War II. Its industrialization, its modernization propelled it to become the world's second largest economy in just 20 years. So that's stage one in the Asian, in the modern Asian economic miracle, right? Stage two is the tiger economies, who were inspired, of course, by Japan, right? Japan did it first. It inspired South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore and so forth, right? Now, then came China. Right? And China dominates the headlines today. It has become, in PPP terms, the world's largest economy. But please, everyone remember, how did China get to be China? Again, exactly in the last 40 years since its reform process began. It's because Japan and the Tigers became its largest investors, right? I mean, these countries have been the most loyal and steady and um, well-distributed. To this day, I don't think any country has as distributed a commercial presence in all Chinese provinces as Japan does, right? So this is, again, not the end of the story, right? The Asianization story is also the next wave, and, and this is what a, a chunk of the book is about. You refer in your book to an interaction in Germany in 2017 when the president of 
Germany, not the Chancellor, the President of right. Germany, asked you, what is the view from Asia? And your response was, quote, the view from Asia is that history has not ended, but returned. Right. Can you elaborate sure. on what you meant by that? I think you know, you're all familiar with the kind of economic data done by Angus Madison and other great economists that have pointed out how for most of recorded history, Asian populations, Asian economies were larger than those of the West and the great divergence only began with the Industrial Revolution and its aftermath and now in really what is in historical terms basically a blip, right? And just uh, over after a couple of hundred years of that divergence, you have the, the convergence again. And so that, the, you know, the return of Asia, therefore, is a perfectly factual and logical way to describe what is happening today. But it also denotes something different, which is, again, this broader Asian set of countries growing back together through the kind of return of the Silk Roads into what I call a system. And this is where international relations meets economics, because the term system has a very specific meaning. It means when a set of countries have more to do with each other than with the world outside with other regions. So Europe has become a system, right? We don't think of Asia as a system. Why not? Because for 500 years of colonialism and the Cold War, Asia's been fragmented, right? It was divided up by European empires. Then came Cold War rivalries and divisions. Then came, you know, with independence, obviously poverty and inward focus, nationalism, no real appetite or capacity to, for Asia to grow back together again. But we had the Silk Roads 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 500 years ago. There have been times in history when Asia was a system, not as intense as today, if you think about, obviously, the technological standards of centuries ago. But, of course, no one alive today can remember the last times when Asia was a system. But the last 30 years of history, and this is 2019, it's exactly 30 years ago that the Berlin Wall fell, Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. Asians have spent the last 30 years rebuilding that system. And by now, at the present moment, Asians trade more with each other than they do with the rest of the world. And this is really just beginning, right? We're only 30 years into a process of the complementarities, the economic and commercial complementarities of Asian societies being rediscovered and reestablished. You predict that in the year 2100, we will look back at May 2017 as the date at which the Asian-led world order began. Right. Why, so what's the significance of who that? Who can remember May 2017? It wasn't that long ago, but probably didn't make our headlines. Mm -hmm. No? So it was the, the Belt and Road Initiative Summit, right? Uh, in Beijing, you had about 50, 60 heads of state, whatever the case may be, but it was certainly a grand sort of ceremony. And that was, all, that was not the beginning of the process of restoring the Silk Roads, which was very much the metaphor that they used and continue to use. That process began, as I said, literally in 1991. By 2017, so much has already been built, right? You have the Chinese pipelines through Kazakhstan. You have a number of freight railways already crossing Mongolia and Russia all the way to Europe. So much of it has already happened. But in May 2017, they put a name to it. Now, as you know, I've been uh, traveling a lot in all of those Central Asian countries, the Stan countries, for about 20 years now myself. So what, way before Belt and Road had a name, I've been writing about it and witnessing those infrastructure projects. But now they've got a nice wrapper and a brand around it. What is it exactly? What are some of the criticisms of it that it's a debt trap? Certain countries, Malaysia comes to mind, have pushed back right. on some of the projects mm -hmm. as they have new governments. What 
What is your view on the Belt and Road? Is it sensible policy? Should the U.S. have a response to it? Right. Give me a couple of minutes on this one. Now, I mean, this is, it is the sort of biggest story of the 21st century. You know, it's, it's page one of this book and it's page 440, you know, of this book. It's very significant to understand that for, for a lot of people now, it's, it's everything and it's nothing at the same time. But first and foremost, it is in, in many ways a defensive maneuver. You know, if you look at, at the geography, China and East Asian countries have perennial concerns about the, the Malacca trap. Right, the Straits of Malacca, the very narrow channel that connects the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean that flows between Singapore and Indonesia. And the vast majority of their commodities inflows, the oil and the gas that come from the Persian Gulf, have to go through there. And the vast majority of their goods outflows. And of course, Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia become the factory floor of the world. All of their exports are going through there. It's a trap. That's why it's called the Malacca Trap. The Malacca Trap is like a 19th century sort of conundrum in geopolitics. So China's response to it is to say, wait a minute, what about going overland? What about recreating the Silk Roads? Right? What about also exporting in some ways our massive you know, capital surplus, our excess capacity in steel and so forth? So whether you look at it as a, again, hegemonic plot or a defensive maneuver, it's also very logical from a geographic standpoint. So one has to agree first and foremost that it's just an obvious thing to do. Then there's the infrastructure finance component. We have a 70-year market failure in infrastructure finance for developing countries. Since the end of World War II, the world population has tripled, mostly in Asia. Individual Asian countries, like India, have seen their populations triple, in some countries quadruple, but with very little new infrastructure spending. After all, they were left out in the cold in some ways with independence from colonialism, right? Without the financial means. And then uh, in, over the couple of subsequent decades, the World Bank and other institutions began to pull back from infrastructure finance. So we've had this huge, then the Soviet Union collapsed, you had a whole bunch of new countries with really poor infrastructure. So again, very logical to be doing a large infrastructure finance initiative because it has been objectively a gigantic market failure. But of course, when you start to pave across landlocked countries that are small, poor, frail, weak, you know, it's, it's, you, there raises a lot of uh, concerns. China, by the way, has 14 neighbors, right? So it has to be very cautious about how it manages these relations. You know, if it alienates one, it invites backlash uh, uh, from the others. Now, so most the large economies, the countries like Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, have, are starting to do well from these projects. You know, it really does help create jobs. It does help them diversify. It helps with business formation. It makes their economies more attractive for investment. You know, their, their capital markets expand. Investors want to go into these countries now in ways that weren't there before. So like it or not, you do owe that to China, right? As these markets grow. That's literally because of this infrastructure investment. Who, who owns but, most of these projects? This has been a point of contention. Yeah. A lot of this is, is, is lending, of course, right? So now a country, if, if you take very small countries like a, a Laos or, um, or a, you know, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, as has always been the case, a small country that has no access to global capital markets at rates they could possibly, you know, absorb or afford, you know, is more or less dependent on one particular creditor, right? This is not new. So the fact that these small, smaller countries now have not 50% the way it was before, but now 75% of their outstanding debt to China is just an increase on what was already happening. But the goal is, the hope is that these countries will use this 
infrastructure wisely, again, to develop and to grow and to be able to pay that down. Now, is China charging, you know, sort of uh, uh, non-concessional rates in, the, in, in many cases? Yes, it, it is, right? The only way to bring that down is to multilateralize the Belt and Road Initiative, which is exactly what is actually happening. When the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank was founded, um, just, a, just a few years ago, it was viewed as a rival to the World Bank, as again, as a threat, as an institution that would undermine Western norms. Fast forward to today, and the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction Development, all have a strong partnerships with the AIB, AIIB. The AIB is a minority lender with those much more familiar, developed, Western-led institutions. It is learning from them. It is not competing with them. It is not dominating them. It is bringing more capital into a marketplace which, as has been pointed out by many people, see as there's a shortfall of you know three, four trillion dollars in the necessary uh, finance for infrastructure in Asia over the next uh, decade. So there are valid geopolitical concerns. Let's turn to a topic that is in the news a lot these days, which is US-China yeah. trade. How do you see this playing out? Are you supportive of the strategy of the US administration in terms of what it is done to confront China? Was it long overdue? I think that you know there's obviously been awareness and even I would say a self-awareness on the part of Western corporates that they are sort of you know complying with Chinese industrial policy and have been for decades in exchange for market access. One had hoped that they would you know further uh, you know liberalize and reduce some of these non-tariff barriers and technology transfer requirements, and they didn't. But just one caveat: industrial policy is the way of history. Industrial policy is how. Britain, neo-mercantile industrial policy is how Britain became a global empire. Uh, industrial policy and import, import substitution is how America became America, right? Um, you've heard of Alexander Hamilton, right? Or you've, you've seen the play. Um, so you know, this is how empires become, this is how a superpower becomes a superpower. And China is repeating that playbook almost to the T, but just in the 21st century. So, you know, so we found ourselves in this position, and, and I'm giving this background to say that it's a bit too late at this point. You know, the train has left the station on China's rise up the value chain. If you look at the electronics sector, the import share of exports in China has dropped from 60, 65%. In other words, they used to require 65% of the components be imported to produce a CD player or something, and now it's below 20%. In most cases, it's zero. Right. So it's a little late to be saying, wait, stop, you cannot do Made in China 2025. They've been doing Made in China 2025 for decades. It just happens to now have a name, sort of like, like Belt and Road. So that said, there is consensus, and it's not just an American view, it's a European view, it's everyone's view, that to do business in China requires all of these, you know, we would call them extrajudicial, you know, uh, uh, sort of violations of international uh, norms. So it is right to call China out on it. However, the trade war, the way it's conducted, I don't think that most American companies are comfortable with this because the, the because of the reciprocal nature of the tariffs and because of the way in which it changes China's strategic economic and, and technological calculations, it actually accelerates made in China 2025. Look at semiconductors or look at uh, uh, chips and, and components for mobile handsets uh, or telecommunications equipment. When the Trump administration imposed these export controls such that Qualcomm and, uh, and Intel and others could no longer sell to ZTE, yes, it damaged 
uh, nearly terminally ZTE uh, for a while. However, now fast forward a couple of years, do you really think that Chinese you know, equipment makers are gonna be buying from Qualcomm and ZTE? Not if they don't have a frictionless forecast around the stability, reliability of that supply. So who are they gonna buy those components from, presuming that they still need to, even though of course they aim to make all of this themselves? They're gonna turn to Japan, they're gonna turn to South Korea, they're gonna turn to Taiwan, who, by the way, are already their largest trading partners. Right? So, America, so, yeah. Sorry, what would have been a better approach? It seems like President Obama and his predecessors did not have much success. Right, so for one thing, you know, if you want to open an economy uh, like China, you know, of course you demand rep reciprocity more uh, ardently, right? So it was an unequal street for quite a while. We weren't really practicing this reciprocity demand and we perhaps could have at a time when China was making large investments in the US, one could have said, oh, hold on, you wanna buy this company? Sorry, can't because we don't have reciprocal market access. So we were allowing this unequal you know, sort of street for a while. Another would have been to join the TPP trade agreement because by in doing so, the way Canada did, Mexico did, Australia, Japan, even Chile, and so on, that would have put more pressure on China. It would have accelerated the supply chain shift out of China, you know, and, uh, and it would have sort of said to them, wait a minute, you know, we probably need to open up more as well. Now by not joining TPP, China is moving ahead with the regional comprehensive economic partnership, integrating more closely with its neighbors, but without the standards, right? without the requirements to curb industrial policy and so forth, because Asian countries tend to have these policies even if they're not China. Right? In fact, many of them, even democracies, have learned from China to do the same thing. If you've heard of Make in India, you've seen the TV commercials, hashtag Make in India, right? It's industrial policy with just a different name, right? So, you know, one has to use the commercial tools of leverage, you know, threaten that divestment, you know, and, and, and we should have done these things earlier, basically, to some degree, and not politicize uh, just trade alone as much. So, Graham Allison has recently come out with a book predicting a clash between the U.S. and China. The Thucydides trap, where a rising power that's displacing an existing power will lead to war. Do you believe in that in the case of the US and China? Is a clash, a military clash, inevitable? So to be clear, Graham does not predict that we will have this, but he says that you know, in, in historical cases of power transitions, um, you know, in, in uh, you know, two thirds of cases, you've had conflict between, mm -hmm. between the two powers. But uh, that's one sort of template to use. Another is the new Cold War template as well, right? I don't personally think that either is as relevant to the Asian context as they're made out to be. If you look at historical cases of power transitions that are studied, it's very Eurocentric. But Asian history, the, 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 the sort of nature of relationships among Asian civilizations is quite different from Europe. You know, in the European experience, you have very claustrophobically proximate countries that share history, geography, culture, religion. And so it becomes, it's, it's plausible and obviously it has been in European history, that one could dominate and conquer its neighbors and force them to speak its language and, and so forth. In Asian history, that's not really possible, right? There's only been one empire that has actually you know, gone, conquered the swath of, of Asia, and it was the Mongols, and that was a very long time ago. And of course, the way the Mongols actually persisted, and not very long, by the way, is by adopting to local customs, right? They converted to the local religions in the, in the territories that, that they conquered. So in other words, Asians have a totally heterogeneous history. Their societies, their cultures are mutually unintelligible. One cannot meaningfully conquer 
the others for, a very, for, for, for particularly long, if ever. So therefore, this idea of an inevitable power transition because you know your neighbor is becoming as powerful as you and therefore you need to preemptively strike him or something, that's not really the way Asians think. They also, to use another historical metaphor that I, that I think is, again, not appropriate, it's the World War I analogy, right? And in 2014, you had lots of books talking about how 2014 is the new 1914, rigid alliance systems and maneuvering and automatic kind of chain reactions that lead to miscalculations and conflict. Asians don't like rigid alliances at all. They don't entertain them. They don't enter them. Other than our post-war alliance system, right, in which certain countries, particularly Japan and South Korea, had strong relationships with us and still do. However, with each other, you don't see that behavior at all. Right? What you see instead is that everyone wants to be friends with everyone. Everyone wants to play all sides. That, you know, whether you're Korean or Indian or Japanese or Chinese, you actually want to maintain uh, you know, good relations with your friends, with your enemies. Everyone is frenemies with everyone in Asia. And you'd never be able to predict if I fight a war with X, is X going to join with Y against Z and so forth? You, you couldn't possibly, right? So it remains intentionally fuzzy. Right. And we may not like that from our sort of point of view, but it's actually part of what keeps Asia stable. And because you now have India rising very quickly and you have Russia as an Asian power with nuclear deterrence and so on, you actually have to appreciate that, that you know, the, the Western template, the Western logic doesn't really apply as much. As, Western, as Asian powers become closer in power, they're less likely to fight rather than more. Well, Prague. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you all for joining, and please join me in thanking Prague Khanna. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was recorded on February 6th, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part, or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.